All right, Thomas Bjorkman, thank you for joining the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm good. Thank you. We just met at the Emerge gathering, uh, I think like two and a half, three weeks ago that you organized. Uh, that was a very lovely evening and a lovely evening, uh, lovely uh, gathering. So uh, what I wanted to ask you is like, what, what are your final mm. takeaways mm. From, uh, from that event? No, so, so it was wonderful to be able to meet in, um, in person. Uh, again, after after so long time, so I could really feel that in uh, our European network there was a hunger for meeting in person. And uh, yeah, as you said, it was it was a wonderful weekend. It was um, um, dinner on Friday, uh, getting together, and then Saturday and Sunday, and then some after events on on Monday. And I think my major takeaways might be that. Um, this appetite for uh, meeting in person that uh, uh, having these chance meetings we, we have had so many so many meetings over zoom and and they have proven very good and we all realize that we can do a lot more on zoom without having to travel than we thought but of course the physical connection i mean just being able to look each other straight in the eyes, which we actually cannot do with, with, with Zoom. We either look at the picture or into the, or into the camera. Uh, but then also these serendipitous uh, random meetings with people you didn't plan to meet, people you didn't even know uh, ex existed. So exactly. uh, I, I take away a lot of those uh, very fruitful random meetings. And, you know, we were 250 people for, for, for these days. So... That there was a lot of those meetings, right? But then, but then perhaps uh, also uh, the fact that this space that uh, we are all, uh, both you and I, in various contexts working within, however we define this field of, of deep societal transformation, that might also involve aspects of of inner uh, transformation, at least inner development. This field is really starting to um, become palpable. And I think up until two years ago, we, we were only very early um, pioneers in, in this field. Right. Not even connected between each other. And, and you and other podcasters have done a wonderful work during the last couple of years connecting these people, these pioneers and the early narrative creators but right. now i could feel that this is going into a, a a new phase where we do not only have these early pioneers in this field but we have a lot of early adopters coming in to this field this field is creating resonance uh, not with a majority of course of our population but with a substantial part i mean uh, or at least a palpable part so say that Now one or two percent uh, of the population in, for example, Berlin, where we had this conference, might be resonating with with these thoughts and ideas, and and that is, of course, very very promising, and that might be the start of a of a larger movement of sorts. Yes, indeed. I mean, I was very surprised that I mean, working in that scene and in this environment for ten. 15 years, how many people I did not know, all the yeah. change makers and sociologists <laughs> and philosophers. And that was, and that was quite something, you know, this amount of, you know, sophisticated and, and, you know, people who are just there to do something. Yeah. You know? and, and, and coming to this field from very different angles. And I think that is one of the ideas about this gathering to gather people who are in this field, but come from very, very different uh, background and perspectives. And of course, as you mentioned, there were philosophers, authors, sociologists who have been writing and thinking about these things for, for decades, um, but also people coming more from uh, the personal development side, could come from new economic thinking side, which we're going to talk a little bit about um, um, today. So, yes. Yeah, people come from spirituality, Uh, psychedelics and and a lot of different angles and uh, I think one of the um, uh, takeaways that many have from from the gathering that I've heard was these meetings beyond these 
different silos. So, for example, that, that an economist might need a person coming from the spiritual background and the, uh, a philosopher might come from someone that comes from the arts or embodiment right. or even psychedelic background. And these meetings can prove very fruitful and be a source of emergence, which is, of course, what we are hoping for. Right. I mean, you, you yourself were very instrumental in creating this whole, you know, emerge Uh, movement let's say and, and because like I remember five years ago there was still just the you know the digital environment was just integral basically yeah. you know and there was no nothing outside of that particular framing and, and worldview and yeah. now and now and, and of course we should mention of course at, at Emerge there are a lot of people coming from the integral right um, background um, as well I, I think what Emerge is trying to do is, is of course trying to be something very much larger. I mean, we have a lot of integral, a lot of people coming from the metamodern philosophy side and, and other old or new schools. But I think the idea, again, with, with Emerge is to try to bring all of these uh, together under some sort of uh, bigger um, purpose. Right. So that, that would strong. be my next question. Yeah. So like in the long run, what do you hope to facilitate with Emerge in the long run? Yeah. So <clears throat> if we tie this a little bit, perhaps, to, to um, uh, the market myth. Right. That, no, no, that, are uh, we coming uh, to this? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, 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 I'm I will tie it a little bit to that and also to, to uh, uh, my book, The World We Create, that, that uh, uh, Phenomen Verlag has also published in... In German, German under, under the title uh, Die Schaffen. Yeah. Um, so I believe very much that, that we are in a deep societal transition. And uh, what we see today, people are talking about the meta crisis, that all these different crises that we see in the world are just symptoms of an underlying meta crisis. And some other thinkers talk about this as a meaning crisis. Uh, whatever we call it, we are in a deep transition. And when you are in these very, very deep transition, and I think the transition that we are in right now is at least of the same depth and level as uh, the transition from the medieval mm -hmm. religious dogmatic society and worldview into the uh, modern uh, rationalistic uh, scientific society and, and, and worldview. And when you go through these deep societal change or transformation, I believe that they are always emergent, meaning that there are new things coming up that you not even in theory could have predicted from what came right. before. And often things that are enabled by technology. And today we might talk about blockchain technology and other things that is just still at the very start of its potential, but could have transformative uh, power for right. the way we can organize both the market and democracy, for example. So what we are trying to do at Emerge is to try to see, understand, but perhaps also feel um, what is emerging. And not just trying to discern, but also perhaps trying to influence and facilitate the emergence of perhaps even a new civilization, right. uh, at least to start with a, a new worldview and perhaps a new relationship to self and, and, and to, uh, to others. And in these emergent uh, transformations, of course, you cannot predict what is going to happen. You cannot plan or manage a transition like this. But uh, as the, the world is a human creation, and that's why the title of my book is The World We Create, realizing that we are creating the world both individually and collectively in some very, very deep and substantial ways, uh, we certainly can influence this transition. So Emerge is both about being open, perceptive of what is emerging, but also asking the question, could we possibly influence what is emerging? And when we are at one of these bifurcation points or phase shift that some 
system thinkers are talking about at, at this point in society, the system can usually go two ways. You, you either need, when you reach a point like this, you, you need a step up in complexity or even complexity and elegance. Right. It might be a more elegance system coming. Um, but if you don't succeed in stepping up, you might have a, a breakthrough, so I, the breakdown. So I think that we are at, at a sort of a either breakthrough or breakdown movement. And the crucial question is, of course, how could we increase the odds of a breakthrough rather than a breakdown? That is a very interesting question because you already mentioned the meta crisis, which basically means that we are not facing one a fundamental crisis, but a multitude, you know, let's, let's say we have a crisis of climate, uh, we have a crisis in terms of economics and capitalism, and uh, only those two are so overwhelming in a kind of sense that the particular individual might feel a little bit lost in, yeah. in that. You know. add, add to that the crisis in governance. I mean, the, the crisis of COVID. The, the, yes. the, the crisis we have in, with our democratic political systems yes. in, in the West right now. Health crisis, uh, um, not just the pandemic, but also the uh, psychological ill health crisis, obesity right. crisis. Education uh, crisis, yes. Opioid crisis. Yeah, all, all of them. So, but then realizing that they might just be symptoms of some sort of under lying meta crisis and i i would one could express that in different way again where you could talk about a meaning crisis but somehow i i think that the crisis the, the meta crisis we are facing is something like the the old world view and the system that we organized our world during medieval pre-modern times again the religious world view the feudal society we should remember that that was a big step forward for humanity during the axial age, 3,500 year, years ago. This was a big step because this enabled us to be able for the first time to live in huge societies, in cities of tens of thousands, inhabitants and civilizations, even of a million people. But that system at the end of of, of uh, the pre-modern time, had really reached the limits of its potential. Right. And that is what I think we are facing again. The, 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 the new worldview that we got through the Enlightenment and the new way of organizing our society through, for example, markets and, and democracy, all of that has, of course, given us the wonderful gifts, gifts of modern medicine, penicillin, human rights, and, and democracy. And we don't want to, to uh, lose those things. But at the same time, I think it's the system that has given us all those gifts that has now reached its limits. And we can see how the system is turning in on itself when it comes to democracy and turning in on the planet when it comes to, to the climate, for example. Right. And so, so then we need to somehow yeah, yeah. dare to let go and to take... Uh, a step into something unknown. Right. I mean, that's what I really appreciate, uh, you know, as a final word on, on Emerge, uh, that you provide a space for all, you know, these conversations to appear and for, for the emergence, you know, to, to appear. It's not, it's because it's not only about the evolution of consciousness or the, you know, or the climate crisis, because it's like, it's all interconnected. It all belongs together and we need, you know, a different source code and a different way to approach, you know, yeah. our, our, our whole sense of being in a way. But yeah. let's focus, and, let's and, focus on... And we cannot, we should say, I mean, we are both, um, we are publishers and we are authors, <laughs> And we are trying to use our brain as much as possible. We, we should know that this, what is going on right now and where we are going is not something that we can figure out cognitively and, and right. predict. So we need to get together. And it's a collective sense making, but it's also a collective feeling and intuition. And also a bit of collective trust and faith. We, we need to take a leap of faith. We, we, need, we need to say, we, know, we don't know where we are going, but we want to go in, in this direction. And then we have to take a leap of faith, both individually, but also collectively. 
Yes, I completely agree. So, but now let's let's zone in a little bit of yeah. one of the big crises that we have, which is the economic crisis, the, the financial and the let's say capitalist crisis. You know, and as yeah. you said, economic you know, system. The economic system. Yeah, the economic is in system has has produced you know, our, our Western standard of living and has produced lots of positive outcomes, yep. but at the same time has produced uh, lots of negative effects, mm. right? Mm. And it is a system which is in itself very old. And you could even make the argument that the economic system has its base in, you know, in our, you know, being human itself, you know, it's like yeah. transactions. And yeah. so you yeah. could, it's, it's one of the But most... Sorry, sorry for interrupting immediately and we can come back to this. But that the system, the economic system that we are living under today, that that is old and ancient, that is actually one of the myths I'm talking about in, right. in the book. So let's, so let's come back to let's come back today. In some, respect, in some respects, of course, what you're saying is, is true. But in, in, in other ways, it, it, it helps us. It's not helpful. To, uh, to understand what's really no, going no, on. No, but, but, that, but that was the point I was getting to. So because your argument is that it is also a social construct and that it is yeah. interwoven through myth and narratives. And one yeah. of the narratives and myths you just mentioned. So would you take that as an example of why the market is a social construct? Yeah. So, so what I'm trying to do in, 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 in this book is essentially two things. And here I play on the fact that the word myth uh, in, in English, and I believe also in, in, in German, could mean at least two fundamentally different things. Uh, in English, you, you can say that, no, 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 that, that's just a myth, meaning that it is perhaps something that, that is widely believed, uh, but it's nonetheless not true. So it's a myth. It's an urban myth. Uh, and then the other Uh, meaning of the word myth is uh, as a story, perhaps even a sacred story or a, or a societal fundamental story that keeps together a society. And in that respect, it's important to remember, we need myths. Those, those sort of fundamental myths that some people might call a narrative or a meta-narrative, we cannot live without. So postmodern philosophers are very proud of deconstructing all our meta-narratives and saying, well, they are all just human constructs. And that is, of course, true. But when you go beyond the meta-modern philosophy and, and try to be post-postmodern, then you come to realize that, yes, um, these narratives are just human con constructs, part of the world we create, but still, we humans cannot live without those myths we need them to orient us in the world yeah 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 and and, and anchor us and and give some stability and direction to uh, to our world that's why they are so important just out of curiosity in in german can you use the word in the same way myth both as something that is widely believed but untrue of course and, yes and also these fundamental yeah yeah narratives so if if we stay a little bit on on the first aspect, the widely believe, believed uh, statements about the market, which are simply not true. Um, uh, before I, I started my own foundation in, in Sweden 10 years ago, the Ekvärd Foundation, the Oak Island Foundation, and started to write, write books and get into this field of uh, inner development and uh, societal change. Uh, I used to be an entrepreneur started a lot, about 20 different companies, some of them small and unsuccessful, but at least three major ventures in IT, in property, and in banking. And I spent 20 years in banking as an investment banker. I was the chairman of a banking group in Scandinavia and on the board of a Swiss banking group for many years. And I mentioned that because if we are talking about the market and the market myth, um, I have experienced the market from the inside, uh, and I have been successful in the market, and I know the strength of the market, uh, but I also can see the limitations of the market. And uh, the reason why I started to think more deeply around the market 
was really as a, as a financial entrepreneur. So I started my, my own banking business together with some friends in the beginning of the 90s and really built a banking business from scratch. And when you do that, you actually have to understand the market in a deeper way. Right. You, you, you cannot just um, look at the market from, from the outside, but you really have to understand the market from the inside. And you I have found, to understand the game A aspect of the exactly, market. Exactly, and that's what you can say. Yeah. You, have to, you have to understand game A, and, and not only what it looks like from the outside, because if you're going to be an entrepreneur and not just work within the, the, pre, with the present way of operating in the market, but you want to innovate and innovate new financial products and new financial services, which is what I did, then you also need to understand the market in a one level deeper. And then I found that uh, I studied mathematics at university. My main training was uh, uh, mathematics and physics, but I also studied a bit of, of economics and mainly the, the standard economic theory, the neoclassical economic theory. And while working in the banking industry, I found that the models of the neoclassical uh, uh, economic thinking did not help me at all to really understand what was going on in the market. Because those models were created more than a hundred years ago when we didn't have any computers, no possibility of simulating complex systems. The only mathematical tools that were available to these early economic thinkers, and here we're talking about the end of the 1800s were really Newtonian mathematics calculus. So uh, the inventors of the neoclassical economic thinking, they really wanted to create economic models that could be expressed in Newtonian calculus. And in order to do that, you had to assume that the market is always striving towards equilibrium and you, do, and you use equilibrium mathematics. And to do that, you need, they needed to make a number of very crude assumptions about the market. And they knew that these assumptions that they were making were just very, very crude assumptions, but they needed to do that to get the mathematics to work. So for example, they had to assume that uh, all decision makers in the economic system are completely rational, and, and know the uh, long-term and short-term outcome of, of all decisions that they make. Uh, they also had to make the assumption that uh, information is, um, total information is available to all uh, actors. At all the, time. Yeah, at all time uh, um, uh, in the system. They had to assume that uh, it's, um, uh, the market uh, is characterized by perfect competition and a number of these uh, assumptions. But these uh, were which, assumptions, and that means, you know, they had no basis just to, no, you know. No, and no. so it, they acted as orienting myths or orienting generalizations. Yeah, yeah just, like, just like we do in, in physics, you know. I mean, when you start looking at a problem, you, you, you might uh, uh, make the assumption that there is no friction or that this experiment is taking place in, in a vacuum. And, and then you study how, how will this ball fall uh, with gravity if it's in vacuum? How will this ball roll on a slope if there is no friction? And then you get a nice mathematical formula. And then we go back and say, but now we know that there is not, that there is, we, we're not dealing with vacuum. We have, a, we, we have friction in the air of friction. So how do we adjust the formulas to account for the real situation? Right. Okay. The economists 100 years ago, they tried to do the same, but they gave up. They said, we, we know that, that uh, the decision makers uh, and consumers and producers are not rational people, but how can we adjust our formulas for that? We don't know. Now, 150 years later, we are starting to discover uh, behavioral economics that is just starting to look in, into these problems or aspects. But these assumptions, again, that these um, uh, early economists were making, 
later generations of, of economists starting to take these assumptions more or less for granted. And then a few generations later, they even became normative, saying that a, that a true or a good market actor is a purely rational person. And the market should always have perfect competition. And we should strive to have this perfect uh, information, uh, for, for example. And then, of course, under these perfect conditions, then you have a self-organizing function. And you, you could start talking about this um, uh, invisible hand that is right. sort of the result of the of the self-organizing uh, uh, market, but again, uh, even the first course you take at university level in economics will will tell you that the invisible hand uh, will only work for a very specific type of products, which are sort of pr private goods. Goods that can be uh, singled out, can be measured, can be divided, can only be consumed by one person at the time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but the so basically, most... we had a faulty imagination or picture of what was going on economically. Yeah, yeah and what the, what the market is capable of. So, for example, producing consumer goods. I mean, like refrigerators and cars. Wonderful, uh, but there are huge amounts of of products and services where the market is not functioning. You have market failures of, of various sorts. And everyone, the, the standard textbook in economics, even the first semester of your university studies, you learn that uh, the market cannot operate with goods of at least two categories. And one uh, is what is probably usually called public goods or common goods which are things like the standard example is the national defense system that cannot be provided by the market because uh, we cannot consume different amounts of defense systems. So if Germany wants right. to have a defense, you cannot say that I, I want to pay uh, 5,000 euros a year for, for the defense system. And another guy says, no, I'm only paying two, 500 euros a year for the defense because It's a common service. Right. So you need to have this a, a common sense making, common decision, and common action. Now we create this. But defense system is just one example. Many, many, many aspects, many more aspects than, than we think normally about are common goods like this. And just to take one good at the other end of the spectrum here, Uh, would be trust in society. Trust in society is a very important uh, aspect. And even economic textbooks stresses that, the, that in, a, in a market where you have trust, your transaction costs go down substantially. So trust is good for any economic system still the market will not generate trust, rather the opposite. So if you want to create trust in a society, that is something that you will have to, just like the defense system, uh, enact outside of the market. And there are many, many, many examples like that. Just one other category of, of goods. So these are the public goods. Then less known, but still in most... Uh, uh, in most standard basic textbooks is the category of merit goods. And, and that are goods that you cannot uh, judge the ben your benefit from this good until you have consumed it. So what, what, could, that, what could that be? Well, that could be things like personal development. Right. Because you, you don't know what it is. And probably if, if I tell you that you would benefit from this uh, personal development retreat or something like that, you might say, well, I'm, I'm fine as I am. And then, okay, I could be curious, but paying a thousand euros for that, no, no way. 
And then somehow I convince you and go, you go through that. And you might say, if we are lucky, that, wow, this was a life-changing experience. I would have paid 10,000 euros for, 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 exactly. for this. Mm. But there was no way of knowing that before. So even in those cases, and different types of higher education could also go into that category, and large parts of our culture could also go into that category. Uh, category there we need other ways to produce those goods than than through the market all right so okay so would you that this is just a intermediary question so would you would you say that even at that time you started out you know creating these banks and these different businesses mm -hmm. that you had like in let's say innate feeling about the constructive nature of the markets or let's say you know game b of the market yeah, no, absolutely not from the very 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 start but very soon when i was trying to 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 uh, understand the market i came to to understand that i i needed to read a bit about psychology right be because again the, the 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 model of the actors of uh, the market is this what we sometimes call homo economicus, these completely rational uh, beings. But of course, uh, that's not the way we are. But to understand human psychology and human nature, then uh, you need to study psychology and perhaps now behavioral e economics that is trying to incorporate these, uh, this psychological thinking in, into Uh, economy, but that's still very, very fringe. Uh, so I started to read a lot of psychology to understand this. Right. But, but then I also came to understand that sociology, exactly, and, perhaps, yes. and perhaps even anthropology, we could come back to that, but certainly sociology, and, and to have uh, a sociologist's view uh, of the market is much, much more helpful to understand it's, what, it's, is, what is actually... Uh, going on it's fascinating that you that you're mentioning this because i already had this in my mind because let's let's uh, indulge uh, please indulge me with a more fatalistic view on all of this um because if you take for example nicholas luhmann the famous german sociologist and he had like this amazing idea of social systems creating themselves throughout the poesis you know through communication and are like self sustaining in, in a sort of sense and that the actual people like you and me and everybody else belong somewhat to the environment of those systems i mean he, he described the system of economics and the systems of media and it's always mm. the same principle so mm. and if i take like a fatalistic you know view on the whole issue so what can we actually change on that you know being exposed to that system of economics which somewhat has its own drive and its own absolutely absolutely what, what can we do like or yeah. is it something that we that you know it's like no we we are like birds in a flock and we can just yeah. go where the yeah. the system yeah, no, goes no, so no it, it, then you need to to make the dis distinction between individual agency and collective agency Uh, and, 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 I come, uh, and I come back to that, but I would just first say that, that what you do realize when you take a sociological perspective of the market is that the market is a, a human construct. Uh, and it's a human construct that goes back, as you pointed out, many thousands of years, perhaps even more, but that the major parts of the market is actually very, very recent constructs, and that we are constructing and reconstructing the, the, the market every day. So I mean, yes, mistake... but you can find uh, pre-forms of trading. You can yeah, even no, find no, this in animal kingdom. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's, let's see if I have time to, 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 to come back to that. But, but I would first say that the, the mistake of the, 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 the mistake that the major econ economic um, models that we are using today is, is doing is that they presume that the market is a natural phenomenon that could right. be studied just like physical systems, just, from, just from, from the outside. When, in fact, the market system is a socially constructed system. And let me give you a very practical 
uh, example here, so you can see the difference here. So, uh, and I think I'm 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 using this in in the book as well. Um, so, as individuals, as human individuals living in in today's society, to me, having money is essential to survive, and to have the possibility to breathe oxygen is essential to survive. So, to me, as an individual, money and oxygen can almost seem equally important for my survival. But there is a huge difference between oxygen and, and um, uh, money. money. Because even if we came together, the whole of humanity, and said, we don't want to be dependent on oxygen any longer. We could do nothing about that. Okay? Some postmodern uh, philosophers would argue that everything is just a human construct. But that's not true. You, you need to understand that some aspects are actual natural phenomena. We, we humans could never come up with a story or a system that made us independent of, of oxygen. Whereas when it comes to money, if the whole of humanity or even a majority, just a majority in a nation state came together and said, for example, in Sweden, we don't want to use money any longer to... Uh, allocate our goods and services, then money could be gone tomorrow. And we could use something else, some advanced blockchain technology thing in the future or, right. or something. But just money w w would not be necessary. But the strange thing is, of course, that when it comes to us as individuals, and here is the difference between collective and individual agency. So with collective agency, we could change the money system. But with my individual agency, when I'm standing there at the cashier's desk in, in the supermarket, it doesn't help me that I know that money is just a social construct. I could try to convince the cashier that you want money, right. but that money is just an idea. <laughs> then that could end up with, uh, with me um, being picked up by the police, of course. Right. Because the society is in, enforcing this collective imaginary as some sociologists call, call it, this imaginary idea that we have collectively agreed to believe in, the society is, is enforcing this. And police is here, of course, the obvious example. But uh, some sociologists like Michael Foucault pointed out that uh, it's not just uh, the law and the police that is upholding these systems, but even institutions like uh, the mental health institutions. So if I persisted in saying that money is just a social construct and I don't right. care, I might end up uh, in a psychiatric ward <laughs> if I persist um, enough. So, so there is a fundamental difference between these things. The, the last comment I will make on, on, on this is that the sad thing is that we sometimes seem to completely mix these two aspects up, sort of saying, believing that, for example, the planetary boundaries is up for negotiations, but the market forces we just have to obey. Right. When it's, of course, exactly the opposite. We, we cannot, as humanity, do anything about the planetary boundaries, but the market we can we can we can change and we can change it in 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 many ways and we are constantly changing the market so the idea of a free market um, is a difficult concept because even if there were such a thing as a free market that market would still be a human construct and could be constructed in in a different way right let me let me uh... Pre uh, precise my question yes. because you know with Luhmann um, he, he had this idea and this is actually a, a, an idea out of physics autopoiesis that is a system which generates rules yeah. through and um, to which it can reply to so you, you see yeah. that in the media Luhmann said in his book about media that everything that we know about this world is mediated through media Yeah. So, and be it like what happens in Afghanistan or like how many mm. stars are out there or like what happens mm. in China, whatever. Mm. And so, so media, the apparatus of media is creating stories. That's his argument. Mm. Um, 
that they need to create further stories. Yeah. And so you have like an infinite process. And we as the citizens, we are the environment and we can look at it. But this is how the system kind yeah. of works. Yeah. It's his modeling. It. Right. Yeah. And so he takes taking that approach to economics yes yes so, so you he, have you have I understand a, you have you have now just for our listeners because i know that you are familiar with okay. that but for for our listeners you have a system an economic system which has certain works by certain autopoetic rules to create some uh, results or phenomena to which it itself can reactor and so yes. you have a you have a loop system yes and it's somewhat independent of what I, what you are doing what i'm doing what you know, in a sense, what we are doing, because it's, it's an autopoetic system, yes. like yes. the red dot in Jupiter, you yes. know, it's it just, you know, so, yes. Yes. Uh, and so that would be my question. So yes. how, what, what can we actually do? And maybe yeah. you have the same answer, but yeah. maybe, um, no, 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 no. So, so, so um, as individuals, we are just like the birds that you say, that you, that you mentioned, we, we, we as individuals, we have to adapt to this system. So there we are fairly powerless. But again, com compared to the red dot on, on Jupiter, which is a natural phenomenon, the feedback loops in the self-organizing autopoetic economic system, all those feedback loops are human-made and, and could be changed. So let me give an example there. But we can't change them as individuals, but we can change them collectively. And, and uh, these feedback loops, some sociologists call these the, the constitutive rules of the market to, to differentiate them from the regulating rules of the market. You can have rules that regulate the market, but you need to have some constitutive rules of the market just to get the market functioning. And without these constitutive rules, there wouldn't be a market. So what is this, for example? Well, in order to have a market, in order for us even to barter, we need to have some sort of concept of ownership. Otherwise, there wouldn't be barter, because then we would just steal from each other, and that wouldn't be a market. Okay, so then the first question comes, so what can be owned? And, and that's not a trivial question. Right, because of course we have had very different uh, points of view of that during uh, uh, during the history. So, for example, can you own land? Many Aboriginal, or most Aboriginal people, do not have a concept of land ownership. Land ownership is something that we invented. So, so can you own land? Who can? Who could own land? Is it a family or a clan who is owning land? Or is it individuals? Do you have to be adult? Could a child do this? Is it only men who can own or who, who can own? Right. Could a corporation own? And what is a corporation? Okay. So the, 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 those are fundamental questions. And then you come to things like, okay, so we agree that we can own land. But then at about the same time, we, we started to believe that we can own people. That's slavery. And, and we have had that throughout, uh, throughout humanity for a long time. But now we have, at least in most of, of the world, decided that, no, we cannot own other humans. So, yeah, no, but that's a decision. And that's a decision that we collectively took. And it was a hard decision to take that uh, when we went from a slave economy to a non-slave economy. But now... Thank God we have decided, no, you cannot own other people. And then you can go on like that. Can you own an idea? Yes, we say. We can have copyright of an idea. You can, take a, you can have a patent. Can, can you even own life? So, but now you're talking about you the regulative rules. Like, mm. No, no, no. Still about, yeah, what you can own. Right. What okay. can you own? Yeah, but that's but, a question of regulation, or is it not? No, no. I, I mean, even the constitutive rules yes. are grounded in legislation. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, but, but you have to remember that even going all the way back to the question of can you own land, even if when that was invented, you might not even have had written laws, but it's still a form of legislation saying that, yes, you can own land. And what claim do you need to have in order to prove that you actually own land? What does that mean? And the same thing today. Shall we be able to own genes? 
can a can a pharmaceutical company own genes, a specific yes. genes, mm -hmm. gene, yeah, a, a specific DNA sequence? And if we decide yes, which is not uh, obvious, I mean that answer could also be no. But if we answer yes to that, then the quest, next question is, of course, okay. So you, now you have ownership of a particular DNA DNA sequence. For how long would that ownership be? Right. And it's a very big difference if if you decide that patents is something that lasts for 10 or 20 years, or as you now have with copyrights that are extended over 50 years, 75 years, or 150 years, these constitutive rules will make the market self-organize in completely different ways. It will still have an outcome, it will still clear, but how the market is cleared, what the result will be, and most importantly, perhaps, uh, how the distribution of the clearance will be, who will be the winners and who will be the losers is dependent on these uh, fundamental rules. Right. And just to finish on, on the issue there of, for example, patents, because this, this is most clear. If we, if we do not allow, for example, a pharmaceutical company to, have, um, to be able to patent uh, a substance, there will be no innovation. So probably patent is a good idea. Okay. If you give the pharmaceutical company 20-year patent on something, that is ample incentive to do the research and to uh, bring out new products on the market. If you give them a patent for 50 years or 100 years, that is just a transfer of money from uh, the uh, consumers to the pharmaceutical right. industry. So deciding on these things might be one of the most important aspects for, for, for politicians in fine-tuning the market, because this will, will determine both what will be produced, but also who will benefit from it. But this sort of um, more advanced understanding of the market is, is not uh, the general way we talk about the market, and it's definitely not in the standard economic uh, neoclassical models. So th this is perhaps the, one of the main uh, arguments I do, in the, I do in this book, that we need to look deep into the market and understand that we are constantly shaping the market and, and, and its rules. Okay, well, wonderful. So now we're getting to the hot topic. Okay. Um, because you, you were so uh, gracious and include a new chapter into the German edition of the book, which is about cryptocurrency. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about it, that you're not being just an economist and, you know, you, you also studied math and phys uh, physics. And so mm -hmm. you have a very unique point of view, I, I would say, to this. So what, what is your point on, because like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency blockchain technology, there is a hugely disruptive force, let's call it that at the moment, There's no, not a lot of regulations there. No, no, no. Um, it, it can be, a, you know, just to put it out there, a, a force for good, but it also destabilized the, the market as it exists right now. So what's, what's your take on this? Mm, yeah. So uh, um, I, I think generally that uh, technology is, is driving um, societal evolution. It is technology that, that makes... Uh, Uh, new ways of organizing our world uh, possible. And one could argue that the transition from the pre-modern to the modern world was an effect from, from the invention of the pr printing press and right. other things that made information much more uh, available. I think that the transition that we are in right now will also be very much driven by technology. Right. Uh, we, but we are not on autopilot. So we are seeing that a lot of... of Uh, technology is, is actually perhaps not that helpful to, uh, to, to society. We see the benefits, but also the, the shadow of, for example, so, uh, social media uh, right, right now. And I think we should look at it the same way when it comes to blockchain and uh, the more underlying distributed ledger technology. I, th I think that has got huge potential when, when it comes to uh, transforming both our economic system, but potentially also our political uh, system, our, our democratic system, being able how, to... How, how, how would you 
what, what's your argument there? What for the governance? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, very simple. Again, uh, what and I compare here a bit with the market. What, what made the market so forceful is that it is a, a very um, uh, powerful simplification of human uh, affairs. So if you boil everything, everything human down to a price, which is, is essentially what the capitalistic system is. I mean, everything has its price and it has just one price. And that uh, makes it so easy for us to, to, to deal and transact. In the same way, democracy, the representative democracy, the strength of that is that it is a very, very simple system. Uh, and it was probably the best system you could think of uh, when it was invented a couple of hundred years ago. And essentially, the idea was that uh, in order for, for, for people in the, in, the, in the south of Germany to, to, uh, to have a voice, they, they got together um, in Rothenburg on, in the square and, and they uh, elected a local representative. And then that local representative got on his, his horse, because it was a he back then, got on his horse or horse and carriage and drove up to Berlin and spent a couple of months in Berlin representing his local constituency. And then he returned and told them about what had happened. I mean, you, that, that was the only way to do it because you had no, not even a telephone back then, right. of course. Of course. But nowadays, we, we have completely different ways of being able to handle uh, uh, inf information and decisions. And of course, uh, m many people now then jump immediately <laughs> to, 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 to the conclusion that, well, now with the internet, we could have direct democracy. Everyone could get all the um, political decisions on their screen every morning and you just uh, say right. yes or no, yes or no, yes. yes or no. Okay, and we have direct democracy. And that, that would, of course, be a disaster. That would, of course, be... be um, a disaster because we don't we do not have time, of course, to um, get informed about all these uh, uh, de decisions. But then you could ask yourself, okay, with the advanced uh, information technology available now, can you design design an information system that has uh, uh, integrity and perhaps also the scaffolding of aggregating local community decisions and discussions on larger and larger scales, and then aggregate decisions up to a national level where- the, the I don't see what that, what that has to do with cryptocurrency. Uh, what, what do you mean? Yeah, it, it, is, it is the same way because, okay, so if, if you would use distributed ledger and the new te technology, perhaps even together with artificial intelligence, the point is that you can do so much more advanced information management than we could do 200 years ago, okay? In the governance system, in democracy. And it's the same when it comes to market. So 200 years ago, or even, even earlier, the, the only way to, to deal with in, information was to reduce the amount of information regarding something down to one price. And what you essentially did then was that you took, um, and now I'm using mathematical language here, you, you took a, a multidimensional value space, all human values. We, we value a lot of different things. And, and this, these values could sometimes be in conflict with each other. But as humans, we can hold these multiple values. So we have a multidimensional value space ar around a thing, yes. say, say my house. I can value that. I could have, it can have affectionate value. It can have protective value. It can have many, many values. But then essentially what the market is doing is it's taking all these informations and then it boils it down. It projects it down to one dimension, the price. Right. And now all of a sudden, all my feelings and values around this house goes down to, yes, I'm prepared to sell this, but I want to have <laughs> 1.2 million euros for it. Okay. And, and this is, of course, a, a huge loss in information 
but at the same time, you, re- you get to a system that is hyper-efficient. Okay, now that we are starting to do more and more transactions digitally, um, at least in the UK and, and in Sweden, we are hardly using cash any longer. We are, we are using credit cards or blips or our mobile phones and, and, and other ways of, of, of transacting. And these transactions leave, for, for, for good or for worse, leave electronic traces, okay? Now with the information processing available today through these transactions, you can start using blockchain, okay? But then the first instance is when you're using blockchains just to replace a currency. Right. You say we have dollars, but then also we have bitcoins. But that's just the same thing, but, but digitally. The interesting thing comes when you can start uh, storing in each, ta- in each transaction a multitude of values so that you might not reduce all of these values just down to one price. And that price might not, for example, include the environmental impact of this product. With blockchain technology and distributed ledger, you could uh, account for these aspects as, as well. And you could use artificial intelligence to clear in all these different aspects and spaces. And this is not something that is happening right now, but the potential of that is in the system. And so, I you welcome, some... so you welcome the technology? The... Yeah, I, I, I super welcome <laughs> the technology, but I, I also be- believe that, that uh, I heard another economist the other week say some, something like that, he, he thought that that Bitcoin was to uh, the potential of distributed ledger technology, like pornography was to internet when it All was right. new. Yes. Okay. Mm. It was a f- first use, and it was very hot, and a lot of people got involved. But potentially, it could even be harmful that use. Right. Mm. And that's how I see Bitcoin an alternative. It's a very crude use of the potential of distributed ledger. And it might not even be a good use because it might just fuel speculation and even uh, be used as a non-traceable black currency for drug money and, and other things. But, but the fact that that is the case, like pornography was for the internet, doesn't take away the huge potential in the underlying technology. Right. And I don't think that the underlying technology and its applications yet are there that we will see a huge breakthrough, either in the way that we can organize the market nor our governance system. But I'm pretty sure that within five, maximum 10 years, we will be there. And, and this will help new systems, new market systems, new governance systems to emerge. Oh, it's a pretty precise a pretty uh, 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 precise uh, uh, pro- uh, prognosis when you yeah. say five to ten years. Yeah, five to ten, we, ten years. I mean, so uh, I mean, and if you add to if and if you add to that, this is just the block. This is just the distributed ledger technology. If you add to that, the the advances in in artificial intelligence that you, that you can then apply to manage these and to make sure that these systems are clearing and scaffolding these systems for more complex decision-making or market that clears in more intelligent ways, taking care of, of, uh, for example, environmental impact and other aspects, then I think the sky is the limit for for what this technology uh, could do. Yes, and we can't forget the psychological effect because like, apart from all that you mentioned, people feel empowered you know, we're yeah. talking about if you, uh, efficiency, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the individual that can actually do something and, you know, produce and, and deal with this kind of new currency to, you know, to change the existing system. You know? mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I, I would say this is also like a huge uh, motivation. Yeah, to- but, 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 but again, we, we have to be careful here because just if, if you just have... Um, a blockchain or another cryptocurrency, and then you try to use it in in the present system. That won't change anything. So so we need to have this collective agency 
saying that, that we are actually going to reinvent these systems. We are going to reinvent democracy, trying to take advantage of the latest technology today, thinking the same way as the inventors of democracy did 300 years ago, but doing it with the technology that is available today or in 10 years, and the same about the market. And that has to be collective decisions. And of course, there will be in both these cases, huge forces that are acting against. That's 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 what the point I was wanted to make, because yeah. they're obviously like a huge part of game A people who yes. want to prohibit or regulate it in a way that's not, you know, useful. And yeah, so you in, need... And in both, in both cases, in the, yes. in the governance system, of course, you, you will you will have the, the populist demagogues that right. are sort of profiting from uh, the present democratic system and the breakdown of social media and all of that. They wouldn't want to reinvent this system because they are benefiting from it. And in right. the same way, you have the huge benefactors of, of the, benef the, the organizations and people that benefit from the present economic system, not the least the huge uh, multinational, international corporations And of course, they they would not be the ones that would be in the forefront of this. They would even use their economic power to lobby the political system to try to keep a status quo. Of course, yeah. yes. But at the same time, you know, as as you need an, an, a need for let's say pornography to develop the internet, you know, because yeah. without that need, there would be no need for digital, digital redistribution. You need people renegade to increasingly use it for the need to build more complex yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. exactly exactly uh -huh. and that's also um, that we, this process hopefully will will then enable and also mature the technology because again i don't think we are there really yet yeah. uh, and i'm not an ex expert in this area but i do speak to experts in this area and the impression i i get is um, that uh, what is happening right now, both in the distributed ledger technology and in, in, in artificial intelligence, is a rapid and deep uh, breakthroughs. Already what is, what is already developed in the laboratories today that will be implemented in the next couple of years are, are going to be game changers. So you, you view cryptocurrency as the most important game changer right now? Uh, no, I not again. Uh, cryptocurrency, uh, no, but but uh, but distributed ledger technology. Okay, mm -hmm. because that that involves both the payments, but again, it might be something different than a currency in the future. We might not talk about it as a currency, but we should also remember that in this distributed ledger, it's not just a payment, but it's in the whole transport, distribution, transaction. You can follow all these goods all the way. So you get rid of all these old instruments like bills of lading and all of those things. You, you just a, a, attach a digital track from when, when something is, is harvested or manufactured in Africa all the way through until it's consumed and even recycled. And all of this is tracked down in, into minute detail. Right. And of course, in some ways, this is also a dystopia because we are with these technology moving into a society where we are constantly leaving digital traces. Right. And we already are when we are paying with our mobile phone or whatever, we, 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 are, we are leaving traces. So that is also a democratic issue that we need to, to address. So how can we use this technology for the benefit of, of humanity and the planet? But then at the same time, God, our, our privacy and uh, independence in this. System. I mean, there's this philosophical problem that we humans uh, have this innate tendency to escalate whatever we do. You know, yeah. there's, so there's just this movie out, Dune, uh, about the civilization 8,000 years in the future where they completely banned every computer and every technology, digital technology, because, because of that. You know, yeah. because of this. So, but maybe, maybe we learn and we yeah. find different ways to deal with this. Yeah. And, and I think I, I need to stress again that, that yes, I'm basically technologically positive. But if we only let the market decide where the technology is going, then we will see even more 
problems like uh, like what we are seeing today with social media, etc. So we we need to have an ability to both have collective sense making about the possibilities and the shadows of these technologies, and we need to have some sort of of possibility to make active collective decisions on how to use this. Otherwise, we might end up in either side of the dystopia, either with, with completely dysfunctional systems like a mega Facebook yeah. um, dividing us, or a super state like a China completely controlling us and, and cohering us. Yeah. We, we, we need to find something there in, 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 between. In, in between, and that will not happen automatically, and definitely the market will not take us there. Right. That, that is human decisions that we right. need to make. And we need to start talking about this already now. To, I mean, to we're doing it. And so about. we're going full circle because it's like we, you know, it's, it's the same with media. We, we have to create new ways to integrate new ways of sense making. That's what we're doing with, you know, with, yeah. with these podcasts and with these new media outlets that try to change the conversation and have some more complex and deep conversations about all of this and come together and, and create a better future. I always think that that what we're doing now is not so much for the immediate future, like tomorrow or the year to come, but like for the next generation, you know, so the, yeah. so, and, and that, that's the work that is, is to be, is to be done. Yeah. So, and, um, yeah. it's nice if a, what I mean to say is it's nice if a video or an interview has, has a lot of views, but I think the, the major effect will be in, in, in decades to come when, you know, when all the memes that we are producing and the content yeah. is, you know, being integrated in a way, you know, yeah. through, through all this, this work. Yeah. Thomas, thank you very much for thank this you. talk about your book, The Market Myth, now out in Germany. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And may I say a concluding sentence? Yes. Uh, uh, I would say that, that the conclusion I, I make, make, make from this is that um, we, we have, going back to the flock of birds, we have a lot more power over the system than we believe, but that that power is, is mainly collective. And to be able to exercise that, we need to understand these systems. And these systems are not easy to understand. So we, we need sense-making and discussion and conversation around these uh, questions in order for us to exercise our agency. I mean, that we have power that we can see, frankly, in your biography, studying math and then creating at the end, you know, this emerge phenomenon and emerge gathering where all these people come together and have different conversations about this thank you thank you thomas thank you very much okay thank you.